I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Dr. Tom Katena. He is an American physician and Catholic medical missionary serving at Mother of Mercy Hospital in the Nuba Mountains of Sudan. He is a graduate of Brown University, where he was an All-American Nose Guard, and Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. Katena trained in family medicine before moving to Kenya over 20 years ago to work at mission hospitals. In 2008, he moved to the Nuba Mountains and chose to remain through war and bombing of the hospital. He's currently the only surgeon for 1.3 million people. In 2017, Dr. Katena received the Aurora Prize for Awakening Humanity and later became the chair of the Aurora Humanitarian Initiative. He's also the recipient of the Gerson Lechaim Prize for Outstanding Christian Medical Missionary Service from African Mission Healthcare. Dr. Katena lives in the Nuba Mountains full-time with his wife, Nasima, a nurse and native of the region, and their son, Francis. Tom, thanks very much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, I, you know, I think it's probably important just to give our listeners a little bit of historical background about the Sudan and what's going on there currently and what has gone on there, because it's it's really been kind of a rough uh, history, you know, it's Northeast Africa, Egypt to its north, Uganda to its south, Ethiopia to its east, Chad to its west, and it is the my understanding is the largest country in Africa, approximately seventy percent Muslim and thirty percent Christian. The British ruled Darfur from nineteen sixteen to nineteen fifty six, and it was a rather dismal place as there was virtually no development there. When the country gained independence in fifty six, there was already fighting between the north. South. There were army coups in 58 and 69, and a short lasting kind of peace agreement in 1972 that was broken in 1983 when the Islamist military regime attempted to impose Sharia or Islamic law on all of Sudan. The Sudanese People's Liberation Army, the SPLA, led resistance in the South, a region dominated uh, mostly by Christians. And the country was on the verge of compromise in 1989 when Omar al-Bashir led a coup and became chief of state. He was the one who harbored Osama bin Laden in the 90s and imposed a penal code, which included stoning and amputations as punishments. And in the early 2000s, al-Bashir enlisted the Janjaweed militia to commit genocide in Darfur, West Sudan, ostensibly under the cover of attacking rebels. And this spilled over uh, into the Nuba Mountains um, as well, where air bombing raids regularly occurred. Due to the rising cost of living and economic hardship and this kind of brutality, my understanding is a coup overthrew al-Bashir with plans for elections. Does that kind of bring us appropriately to where things are today? Yeah, you've encapsulated that very well, Aaron. I mean, as you said, Sudan got its independence January 1st, 1956. And for about 45 of those 66 years, Sudan's been in a state of civil war. It's now two separate countries. So you've got Sudan, uh, which we are in the mountains a part of, and South Sudan, which voted to separate in a plebiscite in 2011. Where we are now is uh, our area, this, the Numa Mountains, is, is an area about the size of Georgia and is still in a state of rebellion against the central government of Khartoum. There was, the, there was a transitional government that, was, that came about after Bashir was overthrown in 2019. That was 11 people, six uh, civilian and five military there was a recent coup about six months ago that disrupted that. So the current situation is we have two generals, 
uh, a guy named uh, Burhan, another guy named Hameti, who are in charge of the country. This guy, Hameti, uh, is the former head of the Janjaweed that you had referred to earlier. So these are the leaders of the country. You know, a guy that was basically, who's basically a terrorist, leader of the Janjaweed militia, is the second in charge. So this is the leadership. Our region in the mountains is still in rebellion uh, against uh, the central government in Khartoum. There's no active fighting now in Nuba, but there's a one-sided ceasefire uh, with rumors now that fighting is going to reignite in our region. We're waiting to see what happens. Before we get into how you ended up there, can you give us a sense from your medical perspective of what things were like when you first got there, like what the hospital was like and what they're like today? Right. So we first, we opened the hospital uh, March 2008 and there was pretty much nothing there. There was a, a small uh, German hospital, which is still there, and they could do some basic, uh, some basic things, minor surgeries, and treat outpatients in a small inpatient ward. And besides that, there was nothing. There was no place for an operation, no place for a more serious medical problem. When we first opened, we, our idea was, let's start an 80-bed referral hospital. And our initial staffing was eight expatriates, mostly from Kenya and Uganda, and 15 local Nuba staff. And of those Nuba, the one with the highest level of education had finished eighth grade. There was not a single high school graduate in our region. I mean, I remember 2009, first high school graduates started coming back to the region. They had been educated in a refugee camp in Kenya. And these guys were treated like PhDs. I mean, they were like these geniuses coming back because they finished high school. Now, if you fast forward 14 years, We've sent 54 of our staff further training. So we have, uh, you know, people who have diplomas in nursing. We'll have three medical doctors in a year. We have laboratory trained lab technicians, pharmacists, what, whatnot. So we've gone from not a single high school graduate, a guy's finished eighth grade, to pretty soon we'll have three, uh, three full medical doctors, MDs, trained in Kenya, Uganda. That's pretty incredible. What, what was sort of the the impetus that were, where people said, okay, we're going to start coming back after our education. Why did that start to happen? Well, you know, one of the big problems with sending people away to school is a lot of them don't come back. This has been a pattern for years and years. You know, I've been in Africa now 22 years, and this is always the, the fear. You send people off for education, they have greener grass on the other side, they don't bother coming back. Nuba are pretty committed. They're pretty committed to their homeland. So we've had every one of these 54 has come back. We had one person who didn't come back. He, he uh, got in an airplane and ended up in a refugee camp in South Sudan and went straight to Doctors Without Borders that was offering these huge salaries. So only one guy didn't come back. Everybody else has come back. Now, not everybody has done well. Some have come back and caused problems, but everybody of those 54, 53 have come back to serve. And even the guy that didn't come back, the guy that went with Doctors Without Borders, he felt guilty. So after about three or four years, he also came back and is now working with us. So all of them have come back. Wow. And is that something particular to Nuba? Is it something, you know, do people feel invested in the hospital, some combination of the two? I, I think they do, Aaron. I mean, I just, my experience before is in Kenya and it, it just wouldn't have happened. I think that people have, do have a commitment to taking care of their own. I think they're, they do feel a you know they've been they've been oppressed for for so many years by the north that I think they do feel that hey we need to take this thing on ourselves we need to solve our own problems 
we need to take up the mantle and really do something to help our people. So that ethos is there. Does does religion play a role in that as well? You know, I, I imagine there's certain kind of Muslim families, certain Christian families. Does this kind of dedication to community have anything to do with with religious belief? Uh, I think it does. The, the Christianity and Islam are, are still fairly new. I think a lot of it is is commitment. Maybe an overarching principle might be commitment to the family, commitment, commitment to the community. There's a fair bit of there'd be a fair bit of public shaming. We had an issue a few years ago where we sent a bunch of a, a bunch of men to to nursing school and they came back. And there were five of them, and they were meeting with us. And they said, "Look, you know, you guys aren't paying us enough." And uh, we said, "Look, this is what we're paying you. You know, we just finished." sponsoring for, for school. We paid a lot of money for that. You need to work here. They said, okay, we'll go home and think about it and come back and give you an answer. So we as a, we as, you know, as myself and the hospital matron, we're, we're not very happy with these guys. They came back about, they said, we'll come back in two weeks and give you an answer. They came back about three days later with their tails between their legs because the community had totally shamed them. They said, you people are worse than the Arabs. You know, in that society, Arabs can be anybody, but they're the, they're the enemy. And they, they've been oppressing the people forever. They said, you know, the way you people have, have done this, these people have, have treated you well. They sent you to school and you're shaming us. You know, get your hides back to the hospital and start serving. So they were shamed by the community into coming back to work. So let's then, I guess, rewind a bit. It, you know, it's one thing, I think, to grow up there and to kind of live through everything. You, you grow up with it. It's just part of your life. But it's quite another, I think, to choose to enter this kind of tenebrous world to help others. Talk to us about your path to this life. How did you choose medicine? Why family medicine? Why medical mission work? Right. So I, you know, I went to, uh, I did my university at Brown back in the 1980s. And in those days, uh, when I was finishing high school, if you liked math and the sciences, you went to engineering. That was, everybody was going into engineering. And the idea was, you know, you went, you did your college degree and you got out and you got a really, really well-paying job. So that was my, that was my thinking. You know, I thought, well, I'm tired of school. I want to go, I want to go to college and get out and start working. You make good money. And I got into college. I, I started there and uh, things were going great. I was doing, I was studying mechanical engineering. It was going well. I enjoyed the classes. And uh, then I fell in with a, a group called Campus Crusade for Christ, which is an evangelical group on campus and a really fantastic campus minister named Kent Dolberg. And uh, I'm Roman Catholic growing up, born and raised Roman Catholic, and I kept going to Catholic Mass and, and uh, retained my Catholicity, if you will. But it was these evangelical Christians that gave me the idea that this was a live, that religion is something real. It's not a, it's not a part-time gig. It's something that you have to take on to yourself. And... Um, um, You've got to, you've got to, you've got to make it so it's it's part of your life. Um, so I started thinking about it, thinking, well, what am I doing? What's my what's my purpose in life? Am I just going to be an engineer and work? And I started getting this kind of uh, dissatisfaction that this was not enough. I need to do something more real. So I just got the idea that I should be a missionary, and uh, I don't know. I mean, the idea just kind of popped in my head. I should do mission work, and I was thinking, well, mechanical engineering, mission work. Never the twain shall they meet. There wasn't a good path to take. So I graduated uh, from college, and I I just been offered a job at GE. It was a very good job, and I was really kind of 
you know, an angst, what was I to do? And then one day coming home from my great aunt's funeral with my brother, I turned to him, I said, I should go into medicine. You know, that would, that would kind of solve this dilemma I had where I could, you know, I love the sciences. I want to work with people and yet I could do mission work. And I felt sort of a sense of peace that that was the path I should take. And then, uh, you know, it was a lot of, a lot of effort and extra classes that I take and a lot of time and everything else. Uh, but that was my decision. I stuck with it. And, you know, there were lots of ups and downs, uh, time spent in the Navy and time for training, but all throughout, I, I kept my, my wish to, to go into, into, into mission, missionary work, uh, choosing family practice. Uh, after my time in the Navy, it was time to pick a specialty. And I was, I was trying to say, okay, do I do, which would work better for the mission field, family practice or, uh, general surgery. I done my, my internship in internal medicine. And I remember thinking, man, I, I can't do internal medicine. If I, you know, it, for me, if I, if I saw a pregnant woman, I would shriek in horror. I mean, just if I saw a kid with a fever, I would go into a panic. You know, I didn't know what to do. So I thought, well, let me do family practice. And at least I can, I can do something with a pregnant woman. I can take care of a kid. So I chose that as being kind of the most general field that would fit best with the mission field. And I chose my residence, residency in, in Terre Haute, Indiana, because they, they had a pretty, pretty broad training in obstetrics and in pediatrics. And I mean, things turned out well. And what, um, what brought you to the Navy? How did that uh, kind of fit into all this? My thinking before I went to medical school was, well, I want to do mission work. And uh, it's much worse now. But then, you know, medical school is so expensive. I thought, well, if I, if I go to medical school and I want to do mission work, I'm going to take out this huge loan. And then I'll finish school and I have this huge debt to pay off. And that, that will dictate what field I do and where I go. And I just knew myself. I thought once I get into that, I'll be fixing it and paying the debt off. And that could be how many years paying that off. By that point, I'll be settled in a practice. I'll probably be married and have kids. And there's no way I'll, I'll go into mission work. So I decided early on, let me take this Navy scholarship. That will pay for the medical school. I wasn't opposed to being in the military. That'll pay for medical school. I won't. I can graduate debt free. Afterwards, I'll I'll pay off my debt with serving time in the Navy, and then I'll be free to make to make to choose where I want to go. And that's that's really exactly how things worked out. I mean, I love my time in the Navy. It was it was great. I was a flight surgeon and went to some great places and really met some great people. And uh, it was a very a very positive experience. But also, it allowed me to. Uh, go to medical school and graduate debt-free. After you finished residency or finished your time in the Navy, did you go straight to Africa? Right. So finished time in the Navy and then went straight to, to residency and family practice and then finished uh, residency December of 1999. And then January 17th, 2000, I arrived in Africa. So never practiced uh, in the U.S., where did you, how did you decide where to go in Africa? Were there certain organizations you joined or did you kind of go solo? There's a, there's an organization called Catholic medical mission board, um, whom I'm still a lay missionary with. So I'm still with Catholic medical mission board. They're based in New York and they, they sent me a package, you know, this was in the late nineties. They sent me a package in the mail, uh, of all the hospitals looking for a family practice doctor, most of which were in Africa. And I went through this huge list of hospitals and they had a little blurb on each one. And I, I picked one. I actually, I initially picked one in Tanzania. And then by the time it was ready to go, that place, that position had already been filled. 
So I picked one in Kenya, a place called Wotomo Hospital, which was in rural Kenya. And I went and my first, um, my first mission assignment was a two and a half year placing at Wotomo Hospital in rural Kenya. And I, can I ask why, um, you know, there's so many places with so much need. What drew you to Africa? Uh, the way I saw it was I was, I was interested in going to the place with the greatest need. And at that time, and still to this day, uh, Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa especially, is still in the most uh, is still in the most need. I can't compare. I mean, where I'm in Uba Mountains is pretty extreme, but you, you, Africa is, is still fairly far behind, say, South America and Asia. So I, I wanted to go somewhere which which had the greatest need. Hmm. When you got there, you know, you're kind of coming out of residency. You know, one of the things that I found um, after I finished fellowship and residency was that I was not really, I mean, I was prepared, but there was so much that I didn't know, so much that I still don't know, that post-residency or post-fellowship, you know, fellowship, there's still a lot of training that goes on. How did you kind of manage that or deal with that? Right. It's, you know, it's a good point. When I, I finished family practice, so I, I thought I knew everything when I finished residency. I went to rural Kenya. I didn't know a darn thing. I mean, I'd never treated TB. Uh, I'd never treated malaria. So again, I had the good fortune to arrive at this hospital. There was a, there was an older Irish doctor who had been there for a couple of years. There was an Irish nun who had been, for, been there for 30 years and they were my mentors. And my two and a half years there, I was under their tutelage. And I think that's the only way to do it, to take someone fresh out of residency or even an experienced doctor in the U.S. and, you know, pluck him down somewhere in rural Africa, all you're going to get is disaster. The type of medicine, the resources, even the, even the medicines, I mean, you know, I, I never, you don't use penicillin in the U.S. to treat pneumonias or ampicillin. Like I didn't know the doses. So it was incredibly helpful and necessary to have these mentors uh, at this hospital in Africa where I first went to. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it was almost a kind of second residency in a way. Right. Exactly. Right. It was another residency in tropical medicine when I arrived. Right. You know, all these other skills, you know, surgical skills and kind of medical skills, uh, cultural skills too, right? I mean, being in this new country, new continent, um, can you talk to us a bit about adjusting to those things? It was uh, it was difficult, and it's 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 an education in, in cross cultural awareness and all this stuff. You know, people always talk about it, but you've got to you've got to come down to the level of where you're working. I mean, just to give a quick example in Kenya, even more so in the mountains, the the medical culture is very different. You cannot uh, express your anger in front of the staff. You cannot lose your temper. I mean, you know, I when I was in medical school in the late '80s, you could still have I think now it's maybe a bit different, but you could have a you know an attending physician blow up for everybody, you know, and embarrass the the residents. That was a normal part of the training. You know, still public humiliation still happens. It still happens. <laughs> well, yes, I'm not sure. I'm glad to hear that. But I'm glad there are things that haven't changed that much. But like public humiliation of a resident or of a nurse was was how it was done, and maybe not a great way to do things, but that's how it was. My God, you try to try that in an African setting, they will they will just shut down. They won't they won't challenge you. Well, they'll shut down and you will not get any cooperation from the staff. And uh, you learn very quickly, if you want to survive in this environment, you've got to adapt yourself. You know, you're not going to change the way people are. 
And then you realize after some time, well, maybe the way they do things here is a lot better. <laughs> maybe the way the culture is has a lot of aspects that we should adapt in the West. Um, it's a very relational, uh, cooperative society. It's, it's very different. The culture is extremely different than Western culture. And there are so many positive aspects uh, that I at first had to adjust myself to, then adapted as, hey, I think this is a better way uh, to live. And uh, I'm, I'm very appreciative uh, for that, for the people teaching me all these things. What do you think is better about it or what kind of works better there? Uh, I think this, this, um, <clears throat> this notion <clears throat> of relations, how do you relate to people? Um, how do you, how do you get someone to do something without making the person, uh, feel denigrated? I, I think they're much better at that. Um, uh, how do you, um, how do you get a junior staff uh, to come to your side? Uh, I think the, the idea of, you know, at first calming the person down, seeing their viewpoint, saying all the positive things about them, and then gradually trying to correct them without any public humiliation. And I mean, you can never do anything in front of the staff, any correction. You got to grab that person, bring them aside, and then slowly, you know, build them up, a fir- build them up first, and then slowly uh, tell them ways that you can correct them. I think it's a, I think it's a wonderful uh, way to, to try to correct junior staff. I think it's something we can learn from in the Western world. Absolutely. It, it's, it's remarkable how different that is from, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure how, um, how much attention you've paid or been exposed to like t- Twitter and kind of, you know, American political debates, but that is exactly the opposite of what happens here, which right. is shame, call people out, um, you know, fire them from their jobs and so forth. Right. <laughs> uh, much nicer. So, uh, you know, one of the things that I sort of feel myself getting into because I'm interested in research and academic medicine is that you become really specialized and subspecialized. And, you know, even in infectious disease, there's, you know, an HIV expert, there's a tuberculosis expert. It's even truer or more pronounced in surgery, where now you have people who specialize in the ankle or the knee, right. uh, or you know, the, even particular brain tumor surgery versus neurovascular surgery. Um, you know, and and you've had to make yourself a generalist in the truest sense of the word because you're responsible for you know all of these people, and um, you know you have to have this incredible flexibility. What are the kind of the range of things that you do as a physician there? Um, well, first there, I would say that the the residency or fellowship I did in tropical medicine in Kenya, I also spent five years in Nairobi, and that was that was a serious uh, residency in general surgery. Uh, I had the good fortune of <clears throat> falling under the tutelage of two doctors, one American mission doctor, Mike Johnson, and Rucha Morangu, who was a Kenyan surgeon. So I learned you know a fair bit of surgery in Kenya. I'd done I don't know, a thousand cases and about two or three thousand C-sections during my time there. So I felt pretty comfortable when I got to Sudan. But then I get to Sudan and I'm seeing things every day I'd never seen before, let alone operated on. And I mean, we're, you know, we're doing everything from uh, VP shunts for premature babies to um, intestinal malformations on premature babies on a one and a half kilo baby. So a three pound baby who's got a big gut malrotation. There is no other option. You know, we've got to do that case. So we've done a bunch of those. Um, you know, I had a guy that was 
uh, it was during the during the heavy fighting. He was hit with a piece of shrapnel uh, in his brachial artery, and he developed an aneurysm in the artery, and uh, you know lost a pulse and he lost his radio pulse. And you know, thing is, every day I would go and ground on him, and his arm kept expanding. I thought, well, I don't want to amputate the guy's arm, so the only option is to uh, do basically a bypass. So I'd open him up, took a sap in his vein from his leg, and did an end-to-end anastomosis of his brachial artery. The thing the next day had a pulse. So I'm not, I'm not saying that, uh, Aaron, to boast. I'm just saying this is the reality. If you know this guy came in, there is nowhere to refer him. So the options are just watch him every day, and then eventually when his, when his arm becomes gangrenous, amputate it, which is a much simpler operation, or give a shot at doing a, a vascular graft, a venous graft of his brachial artery. And, you know, I went and read about it and thought about it. And we went and the, we were able to pull it off. Um, we're doing, I mean, all kinds of cancer surgery from gastric cancers to colon cancers. Um, you name it. We've had a, trauma cases, you know, liver traumas, <clears throat> liver, um, big liver lacerations. There's, there's quite a variety of surgery and uh, it's a combination of, stuff I've learned already, uh, reading and research now. And then it comes to a point where you have to decide, do I think I can make this person better by trying the surgery or is it better to leave them alone and just palliate them? And that's, that's a, that's a hard, hard choice for, for a lot of stuff we do. Yeah. I just want to give our kind of non medical listeners a sense of all this because people train to do each of these surgeries that you mentioned, people train for you know seven, eight years just to be able to do those surgeries, and you're having to kind of hop around and do all of them. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. How much reading do you have to do? You know, outside of your hospital work, um, I assume you you also have to watch like videos of people doing these procedures to you know you have to know anatomy, and it's incredible. Right. You know, a fair bit, a fair bit of reading with Surgical Atlas. I've got up to date. I do a lot of reading on that. So it takes a fair bit of research outside the, the clinical day when I'm faced with a, with a new case I haven't done before. There was a case I think you're alluding to. This was a few years ago. We had a young girl that had a, had a bilateral Wilms tumor. She's about two years old. So one kidney was full of tumor. The other one had about half the kidney full of tumor. And I had a friend of mine visiting and we found the video on YouTube. And I mean, normally the, our internet connection is not, not good enough to get YouTube. We we're able to watch the YouTube video, two Polish surgeons doing a hemi-nephrectomy. And they did it in a way which didn't require a lot of technology because I've been reading about it. And they were talking about using this, you know, a special slush, uh, ice slush that could preserve the kidney and putting a bulldog clamp on the, on the renal, uh, renal artery. We don't have any of that stuff. So the Polish guys did it in a way um, wh- which was uh, much lower tech. And we watched YouTube video and were able to do the operation and the, the patient did very well. Uh, so wherever, however, and wherever we can get information from, uh, we have to go and try to find out how to do these cases. Hmm. Did, and did you find in your, I guess, surgery kind of training there that um, – that the surgeon you were working with also was kind of a jack of all trades in a way. <clears throat> right. So the mission doc, you know, Mike Johnson had spent many years in Northern Kenya and also had picked up a whole bunch of procedures. 
the Kenya surgeon was amazing. He could, he was fearless also. He would take on anything. So he was a great general surgeon in the old style of, of general surgeons. And uh, they had a similar attitude. So I think also a lot of it is also overcoming fear and having mentors that also have to struggle with, hey, look, you know, I've never done this case before, but this is the only option we have. Let's give it a go and just see how they work through the problems, how they problem solve when they're inside the abdomen or wherever. It was, it was a great education in, in general surgery. When you first started doing this on your own, um, how much anxiety was there about it? Because it would, I would be <laughs> truly frightened um, about this stuff. I mean, it, you know, how did you sort of deal with that where you feel like I, I'm not, I've not done this alone before. How am I going to do this? Yeah, I'll tell you, Aaron, it's, it's, uh, it's terrifying. It really is. It's, uh, you know, you get huge anxiety about it. The night before the case, sometimes it's, you know, I really have to try to force myself. I, I'm a terrible sleeper anyway, but sometimes the night before these big cases, it's really hard to sleep. All I can do is say, look, let me read what I can. Let me prepare, prepare as much as I can and really um, feel comfortable with that decision that, you know, this this is the person's best shot. Let me, let me do what I can. I know within our area uh, that this is the guy's best shot for survival. You know, referral. Now, maybe you can refer somebody up to Khartoum because of the, the political situation is flawed, as thought a bit. But still, for years, there was no option for referral. Now, there's a, a theoretical chance of referral, but in reality, uh, it's not there because they can't afford it. They can't make the trip. They're too sick to travel. There are many, many reasons why people can't go for referral. We're getting people coming from Khartoum to our hospital. It's like somebody traveling from Los Angeles to, you know, rural uh, Nebraska to go wow. to a small clinic there. It's uh, so, you know, to refer somebody back to Khartoum often is not an option. Uh, sorry, I forgot to ask this question, but I'm curious. How did you end up in the Nuba Mountains? Um, what was the path that led from you know Kenya to there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been in Kenya for a few years. And uh, like I said before, I went there in January 2000, and I kept hearing about Sudan. This was the the fighting was pretty heavy in the Sudan Civil War, and I kept hearing how how challenging it was, how difficult, how there was such a, a dearth of uh, of doctors and any kind of functional health facility. And my thinking was, man, I'm you know I'm a medical doctor, and now I'm getting a few surgical skills. I would love to go to this place to get involved somewhere from the ground up and really make an impact uh, in the health uh, in the health arena. And so I started looking for this opportunity and then it just kind of fell into my lap. Uh, in 2002, I heard about this bishop, who was Bishop Macam Gassis, who was building a hospital in Sudan. And, uh, you know, I contacted his office. He had a, he was, he was in, living in exile in Nairobi. I ended up in Nairobi also working at a mission hospital. I made contact with his office and, uh, started meet, meeting with them every couple of weeks. Uh, and then when the hospital was ready to open or close, ready to open, I went out to Nuba and we, we opened the hospital. Mm. So everything just kind of fell into place. It was, you know, I had a, a wish to do this kind of work and this was exactly what I was looking for. Can you take us through kind of a week in your life? You know, um, what time do you wake up? What are rounds like? Do you have specific OR days where you're operating? What is a, a, a week in your life like? 
Right. So it's, you know, it's more or less a, more or less a six day work week. Uh, Sunday's pretty mellow. I just do a, a quick board round in the morning and then go off to church. And then in the afternoon, just around for, for emergencies. So starting with Monday, uh, I usually wake up around five thirty. Uh, like I said, I'm a poor sleeper anyway. So you just, you know, first ray of light, I, I pop up out of bed at five thirty. Uh, I wake up my wife and we, we go to mass. Uh, we have a daily mass right there at the, right nearby the hospital. And we take our, our rosaries with us. Uh, if any Catholic listeners, we take our rosaries with us and pray the rosary on the way to mass. We attend daily mass and then uh, come back. We have something small to eat and then start the uh, start the journey to the hospital. It's about a, about a five-minute walk. Uh, we're there. We start rounds at 7.30. And uh, we do a full hospital round. So we'll start on the maternity ward. Um, Patient by patient, you know, start with the, we just start at the kind of the neonatal unit. So we see neonates, uh, pregnant mothers, mothers having problems from maternity, then go over to the uh, female ward, which is a com- combination med surge ward. They go to children's ward, which is combination med surge. And then uh, to the uh, malnutrition unit, see all the malnourished kids, then jump over to the, to the male ward, which is another combination medical surgical ward. And then, um, I don't so much anymore, but I'll, I'll sometimes go up to the um, uh, TB, tuberculosis and leprosy ward, which is a combined ward. It's almost got, usually has about 100 patients. So in total, even without seeing going up to, to TB leprosy ward, we'll, we'll get through 300, 350 patients uh, during the morning rounds. Wow. And that'll take, that'll take five hours. Uh, it's a grind. I mean, it's just one after another after another. It's a pretty, pretty, pretty heavy, pretty heavy lift first thing in the morning. So when we finish ward rounds, we usually accumulate a bunch of patients that need minor surgeries. Uh, people need um, uh, abscesses drained. We'll have women that are miscarrying that need a DNC. Um, somebody's got a broken bone. These are, it's a fracture set. So we'll go do those minor surgery cases. Uh, we'll have some x-rays that we've taken. I'll go read the x-rays. When that's all finished, it's probably one o'clock by this point, one I'll head up to clinic. Uh, and uh, clinic is usually a long line of people waiting to see me and uh, start cranking through outpatients. And we'll see 50, 60 outpatients. They usually bring lunch to my, my little consultation room. And uh, I'll kind of wolf down a few bites of food between patients. Uh, I can't eat that much or I'll fall asleep. So I'll take a little bit of food, get through 50, 60 outpatients. And as you can imagine, it's all manner of medical problems that come, medical and surgical cases. So finish clinic around 630 and then... Uh, Go back, uh, go to my office, and then try to answer emails and do some correspondence. Then head home and uh, uh, have dinner with my wife. Try to finish off emails there, and uh, just hang out there and wait for for if there are any emergencies that come. We have clinical officers that can handle a lot of the more minor things. You know, a kid comes in with malaria, pneumonia. They they're very good at doing that. They'll come get me with any kind of maternity problem. You know, somebody's a C-section or a surgery, and I'm gonna call for that at night. So that's Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Wednesday, and Friday are the main surgical days. So those days are the elective cases. So I'll go in the morning, do a quick, uh, quick morning round, kind of put out fires, try to start operating by about nine thirty, and we'll operate as you know, try to finish all the cases till six six thirty at night. Uh, we often don't finish all the cases. We'll have to put some on hold till then. We'll try to finish them the following day. 
uh, but try to crank through all those cases. And that's, as I mentioned before, that can be anything, you know, we'll go from, you know, an, an ORIF from a guy who's got a broken femur to a VP shunt for a kid with hydrocephalus, stomach cancer to hernias, hydrocele's, uh, to lipomas and minor stuff. It's just a huge gamut of, of surgery. Uh, that's Wednesday and Friday. And then, I mean, the other days, obviously, on, on the days that are kind of major ward rounds in clinic, any emergency case that comes, <clears throat> we'll stop what we're doing and run to the operating room and do that case. Mm. So uh, just to give people, <clears throat> yeah, it's <laughs> it sounds uh, uh, remarkable. I mean, you know, I see... Uh, you know, when I'm on service, I see probably 15 patients in the morning just to give people a sense of the difference in volumes. Um, so to, to see that many patients in a day is uh, really, truly unbelievable. Um, are, you on call, are you on call every night? So if, if there's some trauma that comes in or, uh, you know, I don't know, there's a bomb or uh, that's, that's on you every night? Right. So I'm like, yeah, I'm on call every night, uh, you know, seven days a week. Someone needs a C-section. Uh, right, gunshot, stabbing, somebody in the ward's not doing well, whatever. I'm, I'm always backup call to the, to the a clinical officers like a physician assistant. So those guys will take the primary call, and then I'll back those guys up if there's any if there's any problem. This is maybe an unfair question, um, but can you tell us about maybe the most uh, fulfilling or meaningful um, patient interaction or interactions that you've had there? Uh. Yeah, um, we've had we've had so many. Uh, well, I, I'll tell you. Maybe I'll tell you about a guy. I, I, I've told a few other people, and this is kind of a maybe a bit of a sensationalist case. But he's he's a guy named Aboud. He's a soldier. He's a commander, a military commander, and he's he's been admitted three separate times. Okay, I mean this guy. He's got he's a cat. He's got nine lives for sure. So the first time he came in. He was, I think, shot in the in the shoulder, and part of his shoulder was blown off. And we just kind of repaired the wound, and he did fine. Walks out of the hospital. So he came in later. I don't know, maybe months later. We got a whole bunch of wounded come, and a big truckload of people show up. And I see somebody on a on a trolley, and there's a pool of blood on the trolley. And the staff kind of pull back the blanket and say, "This is a boot." I look at him. I can't recognize the guy. He was shot through one side of his temple and out the other. So usually the entry wound on a bullet is a very small hole, and then the exit wound is quite big. So he literally had, it's kind of like the cartoon guy that shot with an arrow. He's got an arrow kind of going through both sides of him, but there's a bullet, kind of a massive blowhole at one side. And he's almost dead. He's gurgling. He's, you know, in a coma. And I thought, man, he's not going to survive. So I said, let's just do some quick uh, triage and get his wound patched up and, and we'll kind of, you know, prop him up in the bed and put an NG tube down for feeding and see how he does. So I didn't expect him to survive. So the next day, next day doing war rounds, Abu's alive. Two days later, I can't remember how many days later, but he's, he's talking to me, Hey doctor, how you doing? You know, I'm like, Abu, how are you still alive? You know? And then, you know, a few days later, he's up walking around. He had absolutely no, you're, you're a neurologist, right, Aaron? He had yes. no deficit. So wow. you, you tell me how that happens. He literally threw one temple out the other. He had no deficit. He could see, talk, speak, get up, walk around. Nothing wrong with the guy. The wounds healed. You know, the body healed itself. Wounds healed. He had a bit of a scar. Up, walking around. He's fine. We discharged a boot from the hospital. So months later, 
<laughs> who shows up but a boot, of course. Now he's on a trolley, and his leg, I think he was hit with a with an Antonov with an aero bombardment, uh, one of these barrel bombs. His leg is completely shattered. So I look at his leg, it's just just hamburger meat. You know, his femur is shattered in multiple places, and uh, he's got wounds and the bone's broken. I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to probably have to amputate his leg, but he's traumatized. I'm not going to tell him anything now. Say, boob, yeah, your leg's doing fine. We'll patch you up and be okay. So he patched him up. We might have put him in traction. I thought there's no way we can, that this guy's leg can be salvaged. So, of course, you know, days, weeks go by, the wounds heal, the bone seems to start knitting together, and his bone heals. Abood, of course, walks out of the hospital, you know, crutches initially, walks out of the hospital. Now he walks without a limp. So, I mean, you know, when you see this guy, he gives he gives me courage to live, you know? I mean, it's like unbelievable. Right. <laughs> and he's one of several people that have that, just have that uh, ability to survive. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, have there been, uh, you know, any cases where you said, like, I wish I could do something about this, but I can't. And you sort of have to step back and let, I guess, the illness take its course or tell us a little bit about those cases. Um, there are, yeah, those are, those are, those are much more common, unfortunately. Um, I can think of a couple examples of, uh, people that were burned during the fighting. There were, um, they had, a, uh, there was a period when the Sudan air force was using, using these incendiary bombs. And at one particular time, there was a kid, his name was Charlo. He was probably 10 years old and his aunt, were, I mean, just completely burned. I mean, probably 70, probably third degree burns on 60, 70% of their bodies. And when they come in, they're not that bad. They're, they're fairly healthy. Just to burn, you know, we, we debride all the wounds. We start doing daily wound care. And as time goes on, you realize they're, they're not turning the corner. I'm looking for the, for the window where they're healthy enough and the, the tissue, the burnt tissue is healthy enough to take a graft and they can take it. Um, and yet they're not too far gone. And that window never, never comes. I mean, the skin, the, the burnt tissue is never quite healthy enough to take a graft. And then they start kind of spiraling downhill. They get weaker and weaker. They get more and more wasted. Uh, I remember at one point we went in and uh, Chalu's aunt, her, her eye was, had took a piece of shrapnel to it. And, uh, you know, there were maggots coming out of her eye. It was, it was, I mean, one of them, I mean, in a, in a, in a place of horrible things, one of the most horrible things I've ever seen. And they both ended up dying and uh, just extremely. And it was, you know, they, they lived for months. They lived for, I think three months. This was every day running on these people, watching them suffer, knowing our limitations, wishing that we could do something, uh, really something uh, painful to watch uh, and just feeling frustrated and, and helpless with, uh, with those cases. Those are two of, of many, many like that. You know, one of the things when I spoke with John um, last month or a month and a half ago is, you know, he mentioned that in Africa, you know, someone loses a limb, they lose a livelihood. It's a little bit different from here in the States where, you know, there are mechanisms by which people can adapt, uh, at least they're, you know, because it's a resource rich society. How does it happen there? You know, if you have to take someone's leg, it's, you know, trauma. Uh, they just need an amputation. What then happens 
I guess, with the medical treatment, with the communal treatment or the community treatment? How does how do people adapt to that sort of thing? Because I imagine it happens fairly frequently. It does. It's it's devastating. We are we are fortunate in that we have these two Ugandan guys that once or twice a year they'll come up to Nuba Mountains, um, and they will fit the the amputees with prostheses. They fitted, I think, well over three hundred people so far with prosthetic wow. legs, and it's completely devastating. You can imagine trying to picture an area that not only doesn't have any sidewalks or concrete, but no roads. There's absolutely nothing there. And it's hilly. So, and they're all 99.9% of people are subsistence farmers. So the best we can do is amputate the limb to save life, have these guys come, fit them with a prosthetic leg and try to reintegrate them into society. We don't do a lot of social, uh, social interventions with them. The people are usually pretty good. Like the families will be pretty good in accommodating with them, try to take care of them. They will try to go back and farm. They will do something to farm. We have a guy who's, um, he's actually our best mechanic. He's got a lower, he's got a lower limb amputation and a prosthetic leg. You can barely tell the guy's even got a prosthetic leg. He jumps around and can fix, can fix vehicles. He's like the best mechanic in the mountains. So they, they adapt. They're pretty adaptable people. A bigger tragedy is prosthetic uh, prosthetic arms. We've had to amputate, I don't know how many uh, arms. And that is is truly devastating. And there's really not any good technology uh, that can come. The human hand and arm is is such a phenomenal thing that when you amputate it, you really really mess with somebody. We have one young man named Daniel, who was about 14, when he amputated both his arms. He actually, he actually caught attention of, of an American guy named Mick Ebeling. And Mick actually came to Nuba and uh, Mick tried to, he brought some 3D printers with him and we tried to make some prosthetic arms with that. It, it didn't work out that great, uh, but Mick took Daniel under his wing and got him set up with a, with a school in Kenya. And now Daniel's uh, about ready to graduate from high school and is really kind of taking care of this young boy. He tried to get through education, what he couldn't do in the mountains, so. It's one positive thing, but it really is, it really is devastating. There are no, no services there to handle these people. What kind of services or tests are available? You mentioned x-rays, you mentioned kind of lab technicians. Uh, I imagine there's no CAT scanner or MRI scanner there. What kind of stuff do you have? What kind of stuff do you need? Lab is, lab is pretty basic. We can do, uh, usually do a CBC, although often it's broken. Uh, hemoglobin, basic urine and stool. Um, we can we can look at a at a blood film under a microscope, so we can diagnose say a chronic leukemia. Um, actually, we just got a we can do TB uh, zeolnesin stains for TB. We just got a, a PCR machine PCR machine, so we can do Gene Expert now for TB, which is a huge advance. Um, that's kind of lab side. Uh, for uh, we have an X-ray machine, really nice. Uh, portable digital x-ray machine, which we've had for a few years. We went the first uh, eight years without any, th- well, any x-ray. Uh, now we have that, which is pretty good. And we have an ultrasound, which we use. Um, I do probably 20 ultrasounds a day. It's absolutely indispensable. Everything from, you know, now we've taught a lot of our midwives how to do obstetrical ultrasounds. So we're teaching the clinical officers how to do some basic ultrasound. That's really indispensable. Just a fantastic tool. 
And besides that, it's it's uh, history and physical diagnosis. So you really do hone your physical diagnosis skills when you work there because you don't have much else. We can't check, you know, for instance, we can't check a, a serum calcium. We can't tap in the facial nerve to look for a chivastic sign. We've used that, I don't know how many times, to diagnose hypocalcemia. It's actually kind of fun. Physical, physical diagnosis is really fun when you can use it as, you know, the skills you're in medical school, use it and get a, get a result and say, wow, look at that. We can diagnose this just with our hands. It's, it's really kind of, a, kind of a fun thing to do. Yeah, and a lot of those skills have been lost, I think, in, in uh, American medicine, uh, lost or forgotten. Do you think that all of this has made you a better physician? I think certainly in, in diagnostic skills, yes, by, by leaps and bounds. I mean, we'll see, you know, visiting doctors come from the outside, you know, visit from the U.S. or wherever. Not, not that many do come, but the ones that come, they don't, they don't pick up on any of this stuff because they're so reliant on technology. Having said that, I'm telling you, Aaron, if you put me in your hospital, I wouldn't know, I would have no idea what I was doing. They would throw me out. They would say, get this guy from the bush out of here. He has no idea what he's doing. I'd be lost. I wouldn't know what test to order. I, I'm, you know, the drugs that, that, that are used now, I'd be way behind on. I would need probably another residency to get up to speed on what you're doing here. But certainly kind of general medical skills and um, uh, diagnostic ability, uh, it's maybe a much, much better doctor, yeah, without a doubt. You know, when one thinks about uh, this life that you lead, I think it's easy to say, okay, but Dr. Katana's life, not for me. Um, or it's easy to say something like, I wish I would have done that. Um, but there's something a bit uh, like solipsistic about that perspective because it revolves around what you know one can tolerate rather than the Sudanese who are desperate for medical care. Or on the other hand, the family one leaves behind in the States. And in the documentary uh, uh, about you and your work, The Heart of Nuba, which I highly recommend uh, everyone watch, I think it's on Amazon Prime now, uh, you mentioned multiple times that one of the biggest reservations or difficulties about being there is kind of leaving your family behind in the States. And now you sort of have your own family there um, in the Sudan. But how do you deal with, with that? With, you know, you kind of left... Uh, this whole community that you were comfortable in behind you, uh, you know, how has that kind of affected your life as a physician in the Sudan? You know, I, I'm there as a, as a missionary doctor, and I know the word missionary has so many, for some reason, has gotten so many negative connotations in contemporary American society. But, you know, the truth is when you, when you take on that mantle and say, yeah, I'm a missionary uh, doctor, missionary, whatever, that's going to that's gonna, that's gonna come with sacrifice then you have to accept that. So if you're willing to take sacrifices, it just, it's, it comes with the, it comes with the work. So I say, well, look, this is, you know, if I'm going to say, call myself a missionary doctor, it's going to come with sacrifice. And one of them is leaving behind uh, the comforts and the, you know, friends and family, which are, which are very important to me and knowing that I won't get that back. That's, that's gone. I mean, I've missed, most of my nieces and nephews' weddings, I missed their births, I missed growing up, you know, uh, even talking and counseling them, that's, that's all gone. But that's, that's just how it is. And uh, there, there are sacrifices while I'm there. I mean, there's, 
you know, there are physical things and heat and misunderstandings and all kinds of problems. And things come up. And I had this discussion with my wife, who's from Nuba, who now is a missionary with me. And we had some really difficult times with the staff at one point. Really, we were, we were both very upset and thinking, well, what's the purpose of staying? And we said, look, we're, we're missionaries. And this is what it means to follow Christ. You've got the, you're, you're gonna, there's going to come a time when you sacrifice. And I mean, Christ told us in the Bible, said, if you want to follow me, you're going to have problems. You're going to have persecutions and everything else. So if you expect an easy life, you're, you're not being honest with yourself. You know, you can't say, well, I want to be a missionary and then expect it to be all, you know, publicity and nice things that people say nice things about you. That's just not how it is. You accept it and, you know, you're going to suffer in some ways. And I think it's a matter of, are you willing to put up with that? And what are you willing to tolerate? You know, I think maybe with some people, they, they couldn't tolerate those conditions. But maybe I couldn't tolerate being in the U.S. <laughs> working at a certain practice. So I... I think we all have our thing, Aaron. I, I really do fully believe that all this stuff, the work that we do in Sudan certainly is a partnership. It's, uh, you know, I'm the one there uh, with my hands on the patients, but we've got people here in the U.S. that support us. Without those people, whatever I do is completely useless because I have no staff to support me. We don't have any drugs. So whatever sacrifice they make to help us, I see is equally important. So in a sense, they're also missionaries. Their sacrifice is different, but equally as important. And I, I'm not, I'm not saying that to blow smoke. I mean that, uh, I mean that sincerely. A bit of a more superficial question, but there, are there any things where you say like, or materials where you say like, ah, oh, gosh, I, I really missed that in the States. Um, food yeah, or food even. <laughs> cheeseburgers. <laughs> cheeseburgers. I mean, but the reason was, well, what was tomatoes? We went, I don't know, we went probably six, seven months without any fresh vegetable. And uh, if you do that, your body craves more than anything, craves, I don't know what it is. It must be something in the substance of those things your body just craves. I was craving a fresh vegetable. So I got home from, from the hospital one night and my wife came to me with a big smile on her face. She showed me this bowl and she pulls the lid off and there's a bunch of sliced tomatoes. I almost collapsed. I was so happy. And my son came over to me and looks at me and starts begging for tomatoes. I'm like, Francis, I'm not giving you these things. <laughs> so it was so bad that I wouldn't even give my own son these things. So, I mean, I, I wolfed every one of those down. <laughs> I'm also very selfish. But yeah, fresh vegetables and uh, cheeseburgers is the overriding thing that I think about when I'm there. Uh, how did you and your wife meet? We met, uh, we met in the hospital. So she was... Uh, uh, she's from the mountains and, and she had finished the, her high school. I mean, she was much older. They finished high school much older because of delays in education and everything else. So we hired her on the job and uh, she came to work with us. And I just got to know her as kind of on the, on the job trained nurse. And I think what struck me about her was just her friendliness. I mean, she was the people that are very, they're very reserved. They don't open up. They're, they're very quiet, very reserved. Uh, they don't let you kind of. Uh, they don't let you into their 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 brains, and she was just very different. She was very open and just so friendly. She was actually interested in in friendship, which really struck me. And uh, you know, I was you know a bachelor and working like a dog, and like man, this is this is just great. I can just talk to somebody as a human being who's really 
friendly and, and, and good, you know, and good person. And just really just enjoyed being around her. And, uh, you know, the, the, the way courtship and dating is there, dating is completely uh, forbidden. I mean, if, if we were caught, we could never be publicly seen together chatting with each other. I mean, that would have gotten us both in trouble. Her brothers would have come and beat me up. They would have beat her up and put us in prison. I mean, it's really, you know, it's more like Saudi Arabia than it is America. You're really, I mean, you're really restricted what you can do. So we had to kind of do it very quietly. You know, I would know if she was doing night shift and I would make sure I, I showed up on the wards to check on the patients at night when she was there. We'd sit and chat for a while. And if the other nurse on duty with her showed up, we'd kind of, you know, oh yeah, what's, what's that patient doing? You know, be very official and all that kind of thing. So we had to do it very covertly. She calls it our secret love. We'd be very <laughs> careful how we did things. Uh, you know, as you, um, as time goes by and family makes, may make more demands on your time, I don't know. Uh, how do you think about the future of the hospital there? You know, who takes your place? Who carries the torch? How are you, you know, planning for, for that eventual transition? Right. So, you know, succession plan, um, we've been really planning from, from day one. We started. So we sent, as I think I said before, we sent 54 people off uh, for training, and including three medical doctors. So the idea is one of these doctors at some point, I want to get off sent for surgical training and so they can come back and then take that role as the as the hospital surgeon and then at that point i'll have a lot more freedom to go out either do something different or just take on probably a different role at the hospital so i i plan to be there for uh, god willing for a number of years more just sort of sh shepherd this process and to make sure that at least medically the nuba staff can, can take over this this idea both running the hospital administratively we're also working towards that eventuality, both the administrative side and the medical side, that we have new people in place to do those jobs. Hmm. And, you know, one other question, the, you know, the culture surrounding, I think, death uh, and dying here in the United States is, there's something very sterile about it. I mean, we don't, we don't see people outside of the hospital, we don't really see people, our relatives, loved ones, dying or we don't see them die you know they're usually in an institution or a hospital or nursing home whatever it is um and so it feels like we've kind of put it at an arm's distance whereas i imagine in the sudan it is close up and it is you know daily weekly kind of thing that people have to deal with what is the culture surrounding death there how do people deal with it or think about it it's yeah, it's 180 out from the U.S. Um, as you're saying, I mean, death and suffering are in your face all the time. And every single person there has lost uh, brothers and parents and children. I mean, every one of them. We'll, we'll do the, the antenatal clinic and we'll, we, we have to list all the, the births and the live children for the mother. And she, have, you know, maybe she's a pair of 10, so she's had 10 deliveries and three have died in childbirth and um you know, two died when they were two years old. They said, what did they die from? Well, he had diarrhea. You know, he had fever. And she's left with maybe three living kids. That's that's normal. And, um, you know, my, my wife's had a brother uh, killed in the fighting. Her uh, Two of her sisters had their husbands die in the, in the fighting. So everybody has lost close people. And I think their approach to, to death, uh, you know, I just think of an example, uh, one of our staff lost his son. His kid was about a year old. 
and he died. He had pneumonia and I was devastated. And uh, I said, look, I'm really sorry about your son. He said, you know, doctor, you, you did your best. Thank you for trying. He said, if this is God's will, we can't do anything about it, you know. And I was really, I was really struck by that. And they really have a, a firm belief that, you know, God is in charge of things. And, you know, it's, if it's God's will, then they, they can't do anything to change that. And I don't see it as a fatalism. I see it much more as a realism. We all die. We really don't have control over everything. They, they do mourn. Um, they mourn uh, with, with crying and wailing. My, my brother-in-law, my wife's older brother, died last year. He had liver cancer. He was maybe 50. He had two wives, you know, most of them are polygamous and a ton of kids. So we were, we were going every day to the kind of the, their version of a wake. And my gosh, we went in this small hut where, where he lived and he, his body was there. And there were probably 30 people inside this hut. It must have been 150 degrees in there. And they were screaming and wailing and crying the entire night and carrying on. And this went on for several days. And then it was over. And there is no mourning about her brother, whose name was Bashir. You never hear people crying or being sorrowful. It's just, it's over and done with. People have gotten on with their lives. So they have a very kind of almost a practical way of looking at it. They mourn uh, in a big way for several days, like an official mourning time they do. And then 40 days after the death, they have what's called a karama, where in the, in the traditional religion, traditional beliefs, they send the spirit back to the ancestors. And then it's done, over and done with it. They don't really, you don't hear people talking about him in a, in a kind of sorrowful way. It's like, oh yeah, you know, Bashir, blah, blah, blah. But nobody kind of feels that, that melancholy and sadness that we kind of hang on to here. It's a very, very different approach to death. Tom, where, where can people go to help the people of Sudan and the medical mission work that you do? We have a, uh, we have a few partners that are uh, partners in our work and, um, probably the easiest thing to do is go to the African Mission Healthcare, uh, their website. And there's a, um, you can just go to health. Uh, if you want to donate directly to the hospital, there's a healthfornuba.com. So a healthfornuba, one word, healthfornuba.com. And that will that have a little bit of brief information about our work in the hospital and a way to donate if you, if you feel so called. We are, uh, we, we are a, 100% dependent on private donations to run the hospital. So we get we do get one grant through Catholic Medical Mission Board, which is one of our main partners uh, for patient food. The rest of it is uh, through private individuals who give $100 or $200 to support our work. That, that runs the hospital. Without that, we can't do anything. Can you give us a sense of how far a dollar goes for you guys? Uh, well, if I can give you, a, maybe just throw some numbers at you. <clears throat> we have a, a hospital and seven clinics. So last year, for instance, we saw 160,000 outpatients, did 2,600 operations, 7,000 inpatients, probably 3,000 ultrasounds, probably 300 x-rays, in addition to immunizations, antenatal visits, uh, treating TB, leprosy, the whole gamut. That was all for a budget of $1.2 million. Oh so forget gosh. about the patient food, but $1.2 million. So if you gave us a check, uh, not you, Aaron, I know you wouldn't have it in the bank, but if you gave us a check for $1.2 million, we run the hospital for a year. We see all those patients. So if you can imagine 
the cost per patient. I mean, it's it's a couple bucks, you know, which you when you when you break it down um, for for you know for for the amount of amount of work we can do for a dollar is is amazing. It's uh, as Mark Gerson says, who's one of the co-founders for African Mission Healthcare. He says we have a great return on investment. He's a business guy, you know. It's not for us, but for business people, it's a it's a great return on investment. If you're interested in humanitarian work, you know, if you want to give to the to the opera or the, or the museums, that's a different. You're probably in a different category. But if you want to give to a humanitarian organization, um, then I think pretty good, pretty good deal. Absolutely, Tom. Thank you so much for taking the yeah. time, and thanks for all the uh, incredible work that you do over there. Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate it so much. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.